Hello and welcome to another episode of Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that usually talks about uh, the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. Uh, I'm your host, Dr. Mike Pershawn. I teach English literature and film studies at McEwen University, but I also teach a course on intro writing for the university, writing for university, and the course is called Analysis and Argument, and the lectures that I'm releasing right now through the podcast, through the YouTube channel, are are devoted to that content and so there's a lot less science fiction fantasy and horror although the subject matter does include Godzilla so that might come up occasionally really ultimately this is about me making this content accessible to my students while we're still navigating uh, this pandemic um, so this week we're taking a look at chapter one of the textbook that we're using for this course, which is They Say, I Say, The Moves That Matter in Academic Writing by Gerald Graff and Kathy Birkenstein. Uh, we're taking a look at chapter one, They Say, starting with what others are saying. Uh, the art, I guess, of listening closely. So listen closely. Before I get to the They Say, I Say content of today's lecture, I wanted to take a moment to think of, of the big picture for the semester, this idea of writing a paper in slow motion. There are three assignments for this course. There's the summary, there's the informational synthesis, there's the research paper way down at the end. And all of, like the first two assignments are drafts effectively for the last one. So I want to make this perfectly clear to my students that when you write your summary, you can use as much or as little of it as you want in your synthesis. So when you're writing your summary, you're working towards your synthesis. When you write your synthesis, you're working towards your research paper. They are not individually distinct assignments in the sense that I want you to be writing about something radically different on every paper, but rather that what we're doing with each of these assignments is learning how to write a research paper in like bullet time to use, you know, uh, in, con a concept that came out of the movie The Matrix where time slows down enough that the hero of the movie Ma uh, Neo is able to watch bullets fly by and to dodge those bullets. We're doing something similar because when we normally write research papers for university or even writing for the world, um, assignments that I got when I was working in jobs that required writing, you don't have time to stop and think about the process. You just have time to get in and do it. And so what I want to do with this semester is instill some rudiments that you're able to take with you when you go to write research papers in the future. You're never going to have the kind of time that we're taking in this course to write research papers for other courses, unless you take another class with me, in which case this is something that I do uh, in my 100 levels, in my 200 levels. This is a wash, rinse, repeat thing for me, because I think the, the moves that we're talking about here are akin to the sorts of drills that one does, say, in a sport. I remember um, taking basketball in high school and trying out for the team, and there were these drills that we were always doing. And, and I, I kept thinking, like, well, when do we learn to play the game? Uh, but you need to know how to, your body needs to learn how to stop on a dime, how to pivot quickly, how to dribble the ball without looking at the ball. And that's some of what we're doing right now in this course is we're taking the time to work through those rudiments, to run drills as it were, so that when we get to game time, 
your body, your mind knows how to act instinctively rather than you stopping and going like, well, what's the first thing that I do? So I'm going to begin by talking about the writing process that I encourage my students to follow. And normally when a student's writing a single research paper for a course where I don't have this kind of summary synthesis drafting breakdown, then I recommend that they take a four-week process. So writing process step one, think of that as a single week for future papers that you're going to write. And I call this part of the writing process, and many other books do. I got this out of a, a writing text years ago, and then I've, I've revised it over the years. We just call it planning. And planning is about gathering ideas and determining focus. Gathering ideas and determining focus. Now, I want you to note the order of those steps. It's gather ideas, then you determine the focus. A lot of my students, and maybe it's because you were taught this, I don't know, uh, but they have this impression that they should come up with a thesis first. And then they go and they find articles that support that thesis. And as I've said in previous lectures, that's ass backwards. Don't come up with a thesis and then try to find sources that will perfectly cohere with your idea. Um, first and foremost, because that's not research. It's proof texting. What do we mean by proof texting? It's the sort of thing that people do uh, when they want to prove something on, in an internet conversation, for example, a conversation on social media. Arguments that I've had uh, over the past year, and I'm sure you've had arguments like this, over issues related to COVID. Um, somebody will point to Jim's YouTube video uh, while I'm pointing to a, you know, an, an academic study, uh, you know, and, and we have this argument, right? Um, and they go and they find sources that corroborate their ideas. And I go and I just find sources that are worthwhile, sources that are reputable, sources that uh, tell me what, you know, is happening as opposed to what I want to have happening. Um, like from a proof texting perspective, I don't want to mask. I don't want to, you know, have my students online. I don't want to do these things this way. But the best research that we have from the best experts looking at this situation are telling us that there are ways to be safe and there are ways to be not safe right? To be unsafe. If I go and I find, and I can, this is the thing, the internet is going to reward me. If I just go and Google, do I have to wear a mask? I'm probably going to find people who will tell me that I don't need to. Uh, the question that I want to ask at that point is, is, are, are they experts? Um, are they currently, you know, up-to-date experts? Because every now and again, you get someone who got, you know, disbarred from whatever it was that they were as an expert, um, but they're still talking. And they say, I, you know, I worked in this field for years and years and years. And it's like, yeah, but you got fired from your job. So should I really be listening to you? Because we always want to be thinking about the validity of our sources, not just, you know, did we find them even in, an, in a library database at McEwen or whatever university, but are they valid sources beyond that? We go and we, and, and for some people, they just go, well, this seems like an awful lot of work. And it's like, yeah, but finding the truth, especially in our world of information and misinformation uh, is increasingly difficult. It's, it's not just something where you go and in the old days, you pulled an Encyclopedia Britannica off the wall and that told you the way things were. As it turned out, Encyclopedia Britannica was wrong about a lot of things. Um, so, Finding the, finding the truth or facts is an ongoing process. But to, to find what's really going on, we can't come in 
with a predisposition to the way, like to the idea, you know, that, you know, um, whatever it is that we're researching, we don't come in and we, we say, you know, climate change isn't really a thing. We come in and we say, I'm going to find out about climate change. That's the kind of research that we want to do in university. That's the kind of research that's going to be required of you at university. And so, you know, from, from a big ideas and learning for the sake of learning, we start with what others say, we gather ideas, and then we determine our focus simply because it's the best approach. It's the one that gets us to, and I'm, I'm very, I like to be very careful with this word because I find it to be a loaded term, to the truth, right? Um, I like maybe to say facts more often, but because I'm, I work in, in literature and I work with fiction, I can't always talk about facts because fiction doesn't produce facts. Um, it's like the difference between thinking about the atomic bomb through historical analyses like Garel Perovitz's and thinking about Hiroshima from the biased perspective, ultimately, uh, and Alperovitz's is biased too, by the way. We'll find out more about that later in the semester. But um, Godzilla is a, is a work of fiction that m makes a metaphor out of the atomic bomb. So can I get facts about the atomic bomb from Godzilla? Obviously not. Um, but can I learn something factual about Hiroshima from studying Godzilla? Yes, absolutely. Uh, but I can't come in with a predisposition, Godzilla, in it, for, for example, saying like, well... Godzilla is just stupid. It's a guy in a rubber suit. It doesn't have anything to teach me because then I'm certainly not going to learn anything. Now, practically, the other reason that we want to avoid doing this, coming up with a thesis and then finding sources, the reason we want to avoid determining focus and then gathering ideas is because sometimes our focus is so wrong that no one will support it. Like we go to the, we were like, I want to prove whatever it is. And you go to the library and you start doing research and you can't find anyone to support what you've said. Now, that could just mean no one's ever done what you're talking about. No one's ever done research on the thing that you're looking at. And I had this happen when I was working on my master's thesis on a movie called Pan's Labyrinth. No one had written about it because it had just come out in theaters. In fact, I had already, I'd come up with an idea for what I was going to do my master's on. I went and I saw Pan's Labyrinth and I was like, screw whatever I was going to do. I want to do this. I want to research this. And, but there wasn't anybody who had written about Pan's Labyrinth. So I had to take a different tack with that. And we can talk more about that another day. Um, but simply understand that there's a really good example. If I'd been writing an undergraduate paper that required me to use a certain number of secondary sources that were very particularly about that movie, I couldn't have done it. I could not have fulfilled the requirements of the assignment because no one had written about it in academia. Because it takes a while for academic articles to get produced. Uh, and we're going to talk about that in an upcoming lecture too. Like, why, does it, why, why is it that we don't have an academic article two weeks after a really great movie comes out. Um, that's how 
sort of regular journalism works. Regular journalism can move really quickly. Uh, academia moves at a glacial pace, we might say. Uh, and in some respects, that's really good because it means somebody's taking the time to really think through it. And in other ways, it's really bad because by the time the information comes out, it might be irrelevant. Or potentially, the world will have changed in some way where we've discovered something new that needs revision. We take we take a look at the title of Garal Perovitz's article, and he's, you know, rethinking Hiroshima, reconsidering Hiroshima. That means that somebody else's theory is is being reconsidered and Garal Perovitz is coming to that and saying, hey, we might need to look at this from a new perspective. But again, just practically, if you come up with a focus, if you determine your focus and there are no secondary sources, no articles, no books, no academic resources available to you to support that focus, then it's a bad approach. That's a bad focus. It's a weak thesis or it's a thesis that hasn't been developed yet. And you might think, well, I'm the one to develop it. Okay, but take a look at the assignment. Does it require you to use a particular set of sources? And so the, you know, and if you've driven yourself into a corner where you literally can't get the paper done because you can't find articles to say what you want to say, either you're wrong or it's just that nobody's done the research yet. And maybe that's not the best approach for this paper because at the end of the day, the goal of writing in university isn't to do your life's work. This is some of the best advice I ever received from an instructor. He said, this was for uh, PhD dissertations. This is people writing like 300 page papers. This is like career defining stuff. But he still said, even at that point, you're not here to do your life's work. You're here to write your dissertation and get it done and get out the door. And another piece of really great advice that I got from somebody during my PhD was, this doesn't need to be perfect, but it does need to get finished. And so if we determine a focus that we cannot gather ideas for, we are practically, just practically, screwing ourselves over. The better approach, the absolute better approach, is to gather the ideas and then determine the focus, then determine the focus based out of the ideas that we are gathering. Okay, so we start by gathering ideas and that's what we're doing with this first assignment. We're taking a look at what others have to say. Again, you know, the title of the book we're, we're working with for this course, they say, I say, and we're starting with what they say with very little regard for what I say. I don't want to know what you have to say about Hiroshima or Godzilla yet. Um, and no matter what you're working on, you should always start with this attitude, I guess, of humility in some ways to say that I don't know it all. You're going to get a chance to respond. You're going to get a chance to use your voice. It's just not going to happen on this summary. And it shouldn't really happen during the planning process. Again, in the writing process, when you're doing a research paper for other courses, take a week literally a week to go and gather up some articles, read some chapters in books. Don't necessarily read the whole book. That's a bad approach for undergraduate uh, research is to go and like get out, a, get a book out of the library. And we always have the best intentions. I'm going to read this whole book. No, you're not. You've got four other courses or three other courses. You got other shit to do. You do not have time to be reading a whole book. Now you could read a chapter. You can go to the index and you can find relevant content 
for your paper. But reading an entire book is probably not going to be the best route, especially for first and second year courses. So we want to we want to rely on chapters. We want to rely on articles. Um, and while I'm on this, I'm going to just take a moment to say this. Please also understand that articles are almost never introductory content. They're almost always next level content. Um, but because they get assigned so often in courses, that's why I'm utilizing articles and not necessarily like an introduction to Godzilla or an introduction to Hiroshima. But I tried to find articles that kind of gave it to us in a way. Um, so we're starting with what they say when we're in the planning phase. That's all we're looking at during the planning phase is what they say. And Grafenberkenstein, in the first uh, section that we looked at last week, um, the preface, in our experience, students best discover what they want to say, not by thinking about a subject in an isolation booth, but by reading texts, listening closely to what other writers say, and looking for an opening through which they can enter the conversation. Let's start with students best discover what they want to say, not by thinking about a subject in an isolation booth. When I was in university, I didn't really understand what the goal of a research paper was. I thought they were just like op-ed pieces, an opinion, editorial, essay, that I was supposed to give my brilliant ideas and then occasionally pepper it with quotations from other people. That is not good research. It might end up being a really interesting piece of writing. It may even... Um, inadvertently be, you know, true or factual. But it's almost always more difficult to write in that way unless you're writing about something that you absolutely love. And here's the trouble with that, is that most of the time, in at least in my undergraduate experience, I wasn't writing about things I was like deeply passionate about. I wasn't super interested in a lot of the stuff that I had to write about. I mean, an English degree requires that you read all sorts of books that you may not be interested in. It's not that they're not brilliant. It's not that they're not amazing. It's just that for someone like me, whose background is in science fiction, fantasy, and horror, who wanted to lecture in that area, um, you know, a course on uh, George Eliot's work isn't exactly going to light my head on fire. And if I'm in a course on Jane Austen, I'm probably thinking about, you know, uh, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, not just Pride and Prejudice. But we don't always get to write about what we want to write about. And in many courses, it's as far removed from writing about what we want to write about as you could imagine. I remember writing a paper for one of my history courses. And it uh, there was a list of topics that I could choose from. Um, and because, I'll, I'll tell you, in my first year, first two years of university, I was just, I was a terrible student. Um, uh, so learn from my mistakes. And I put off going to choose my topic. So all the really good topics had already been chosen. This prof gave a list. There was like as many topics as there were students. And I know that there are profs who do this, take this sort of approach. They don't, they don't just say like, come up with whatever idea you want. Because um, especially in a history course, that can be really, really bad. Because uh, students don't really know uh, the discipline of history, as it were. And I certainly didn't. And so I... 
I just saw the Boxer Rebellion, and I didn't know what the heck that was, but it sounded excite- exciting because Star Wars had a rebellion. That was sort of how my brain was working, right? And so I'm going to write about the Boxer Rebellion. Maybe that'll be exciting. Um, but then I put off writing about my about the Boxer Rebellion for quite a while, and um, and then when I finally went to the library, I got a couple of books. I brought them home. I started skimming, skim reading them. I could not absorb the information quickly enough, and I consequently ended up writing that paper in that isolation booth, as it were. The isolation booth concept is simply this: that we are trying to determine our focus without ever having gathered information, right? Going, going back uh, to this, you know, breakdown, gathering ideas and then determining focus. And if uh, I don't gather the ideas, it is exceedingly difficult to determine the focus. I've had lots of students come to me, you know, really late in the game. I don't know what I want to write about. And I ask them if they've read anything and they say, no, I absolutely haven't. And I said, well, then yeah, I, I don't know that I can help you because like this is just, you're just trying to grab a concept out of thin air. Uh, and we shouldn't be trying to write about a subject, think about a subject in an isolation booth. I have an area of expertise uh, in the subgenre of science fiction and fantasy called steampunk. And I just wrote uh, an article about it for publication and I was still refusing to think about the subject in an isolation booth. I was responding to what others had said. I was utilizing information from other sources. I was doing a lot of academic reading. Um, and that's my jam. That's my area. That's what I've written about just about really. No, I want to say just about my whole academic career has been steampunk. And so other people quote me in that area, but it doesn't stop me from quoting others, referencing others, coming, uh, bouncing up against their ideas. Uh, I'm reading texts and I'm listening closely. And then I'm looking for an opening to enter the conversation. In my case is not entering, it's re-entering, but in your case, it's entering. And when, when I write about something I've never thought about before, and I had to do that over the last couple of years as well. I wrote an article that was about a concept I wasn't familiar with. And so I had to do some research into what that concept was before I could write uh, for publication in this case. So we don't want to think about these subjects in an isolation booth. We want to read texts. We want to listen closely to what other writers say. And then we look for an opening through which we can enter the conversation. Now, with the current assignment, the summary, you don't want to go to that third step yet. You're not looking for an opening through which you can enter the conversation, although I'll bet money that those of you, especially who are working in the Hiroshima track, are responding to what Gar Alperovitz has said, either with a resounding, yes, I totally agree with you, um, you know, America was terrible for dropping the bomb, or with a, wait a second, I'm not sure that that's entirely true, uh, but this isn't the moment yet to say what you think, because at this point, be it either in the Godzilla track or the Hiroshima track, you only really have two sources. You have the first source that you read to determine which of the, the streams you were going to write in. So you either have Peter Brothers' article on Godzilla or you have Michael Milam's article on Hiroshima. And then you've added another layer to that, either Steve Reifel's article on Godzilla or uh, Gar Alperovitz's article on Hiroshima. 
two sources total. In journalism, they want three solid sources before they can they can take a story and run with it. They have to have three legitimate sources. And a lot of the time in university, we do the same thing. We say at least three secondary sources. And depending on what year of your career in university you're, you're, you're in, that could be more. Um, by the uh, third and fourth year, they may be asking for anywhere from five to ten sources. So we need to be reading texts and listening closely, thinking about what we want to say further down the road, but right now, just reading and listening closely. So his first assignment, right, listening closely, and this is something that McGrath and Birkenstein say in the introduction, we want to be listening closely to others and summarizing what they have to say. Why? To help generate our ideas to help generate our ideas. They say that listening closely to others and summarizing what they have to say can help writers generate their own ideas. And perhaps this, more than any other reason that I'm given, will be the one that you run with for the rest of your academic career. But when you summarize what other people have to say, you're literally letting other people help you write your paper. If you try to write your entire paper in a vacuum, you have to generate all the ideas. But if you listen closely to your sources and summarize what they say, not just quoting them, because quoting only gets you so far, um, but summarizing what they have to say, it's, it's, I don't want to quite say that it, it, the paper writes itself, but it's a lot easier than if you just try to write it out of thin air. And on the subject of quoting, I had a student turn in a paper where most of the, most of the paper was quotations. It was just quote stringing. Quote, and then, quote, and he says, quote, I took out all the quotes just to see how much content was actually the students. There was 25% of the assigned word count remaining. I said, this is unacceptable. You've basically, I, I could just go and reread the article that, you know, you were assigned to work with for this assignment or the number, like, you know, all these different articles. You could have just said, go read these people because that's effectively what you did in the end is you just made me read their stuff. That's not writing. That's not you demonstrating your mastery of the content. And ultimately, you have to be doing that. You have to demonstrate your own mastery of the content. And summarizing certain, certainly does that for us. So chapter one of They Say, I Say, the assigned reading for today, starting with what others are saying, says to give writing the most important thing of all, namely a point, we can't forget this. Now, if, you know, you're writing a summary. You might say, well, what, who's like, what point am I supposed to be making in, in this? Like, you know, is it, am I, you told me I wasn't supposed to, I it wasn't supposed to be my idea. It was supposed to be my opinion. Remember, we're writing a paper in slow motion. So some of the content and they say, I say is for further down the line. But some of what gets said at this point in the book is corroborating the approach that we're taking by starting with summary, by starting with listening closely. When you summarize someone else's content, you will have internalized it in a way that you never will if all you do is quote them. You will know it in a way that you never will if all you do is skim read it and, you know, a couple quick references. When you're done doing your summary for this course, you will likely never forget some of the things you've learned from Garel Peravitz and Steve Rifle, okay? Um, and that is going to help you later in the course when you go to work on the research paper to know what you want to say, 
to give you a point that where you are responding to what these writers have said. Okay, so to give writing the most important thing of all, namely a point, a writer needs to indicate clearly not only what his or her thesis is, but also what larger conversation the thesis is responding to. And that's essential for research in university as well. It's not just that you can demonstrate how smart you are. It's also demonstrating that you know what other smart people have said about this subject matter, or that you know that there is, say, a controversial uh, aspect to the approach you're taking, or that you are simply coming into alignment with the prevailing theory in a certain discipline. When I say a certain discipline, disciplines are like psychology, English, sociology, commerce. These are disciplines. Uh, and you will focus your discipline uh, in your second year in university. Remember, Graf and Birkenstein say, remember that you are entering a conversation and therefore need to start with what others are saying, and then introduce your own ideas as a response. Remember that you're entering a conversation and therefore need to start with what others are saying, and then introduce your own ideas as a response. Again, we don't start by determining focus. We start by gathering ideas. And this summary is the act of gathering ideas. But it, again, in that slow motion way, in that bullet time way, one source now summarize. And again, you will never do this in the future. Not at this level. You might do little paragraph-sized summaries of articles um, for assignments like an annotated bibliography. Some of you may have done these in high school. An annotated bibliography is taking all of your sources, giving paragraph length summaries of it and sort of defending why you're going to use it on your paper. So we start with what others are saying. Then we introduce our own ideas as a, re as a response. You are not at the point of the second half of this. Right now, all you're doing is entering a conversation and starting with what others are saying. Further down the line, further into the course, you will then introduce your own ideas as a response. But in the meantime, while we're working towards that, write down your ideas. Write down some of the things that you think you might want to talk about in a research paper down the line. And what you'll find is that it's going to be way easier to write that thing than if you don't write those ideas down, than if you don't think about what you say in response to what they say. Keep that in mind when you go to write papers for other courses. And I'm also teaching this because I realize that some of you are going to be assigned research papers in other courses in your first year, and you won't have a clue what you're doing. But they say, I say, can get you there. And so we're not only talking about this course, but we're talking about how to write for all of our courses. And Ber Graf and Birkenstein say that specifically, we, we suggest that you summarize, look at there, there's that word, summary, summarize what they say as soon as you can in your text and remind readers of it at strategic points as your text unfolds. Does this mean that it should be in the introduction of a paper? Remember that in your summary, you don't have an introduction. You just say what they say. You're not looking to have a fancy introduction for that paper, but say for another course, say that you got assigned a research paper this semester in some other class, should you include summary in your introduction? Maybe I would save it for after the introduction. The introduction has a different function. We're not talking about introductions today, so I'm not going to go there, but I'm just going to say that I would avoid using summary summaries of your sources in your intro. I would save that for the second uh, paragraph or the third paragraph in. 
to give your readers a sense of the arguments that you are responding to. Right. So you do it as soon as you can, and then you remind it. You remind your readers of of those at strategic points as your argument unfolds. They they elaborate by saying it is generally best to summarize the ideas you're responding to briefly, briefly, at the start of your text, and to delay detailed elaboration until later. Okay, delay detailed elaboration until later. But look at look at two two concepts that we've got here: summarizing the ideas briefly, and detailed elaboration. When you're done the summary assignment you're currently working on you will have the content you need to do those two things for the paper you're going to write at the end of the course. You will, you will have a strong idea of how to respond, you know, summarizing the ideas you're responding to briefly. You'll have that brevity, that concision, but you'll also be able to include content that's detailed elaboration because you will have done five, a 500 word summary, not just like a two sentence summary. When it, when Graf and Birkenstein say that it's generally best to summarize the ideas you're responding to briefly, what they're saying is that in a research paper, you should take maybe one, two lines to give your reader an idea of what the big argument is. But you will also already have done that because as you may remember, the first line of your summary should say in title, author states blank. Okay. And obviously when I say in title and author, you have to actually insert those there. Um, uh, states blank and blank is the brief version of what they've said. So this is how what we're currently doing is going to be useful for you, either in papers you're writing this semester and other courses or in papers that you're going to be writing uh, for future classes or the paper that you're going to write at the end of the semester. Now, the templates in this chapter aren't particularly useful to you right now. Uh, there are templates for introducing what they say, and those are sort of helpful. I mean, you take a look at a couple of those, and, and, and you, you will have to modify them to use them in the summary. Um, but they're going to be useful for you, again, down the road. So you want, to, you want to take a look at those templates and maybe highlight some of them, say, oh, this one looks really good. Just ask yourself, if you were writing a research paper right now on the stuff that you're reading about, which of the templates do you think would be most useful? That would be a good exercise to take there. Um, there are templates there that are for making what they say something you say. You don't want to do this on your summary. I shouldn't see personal pronouns from you on the summary. That doesn't mean I don't want personal pronouns in your later paper. I don't have a problem with people using personal pronouns. I just used a personal pronouns three times in the last little bit here. I said I three times, now I just said it a fourth time. If I said it any other way, fifth time, it would be really weird. I'd be talking in the third person. Dr. Pershawn thinks, that's weird. It's pretentious. It's bizarre. Why do we do it in our writing when we don't do it in our speech? Can you use personal pronouns in your papers? Yes. Should I see any of them on the summary? No. Okay. Um, there are templates for introducing an ongoing debate. Those ones might be useful because you might look at that and see how Garal Peravitz or Steve Rifle are actually introducing an ongoing debate related to Hiroshima or Godzilla. Does that mean you use those templates in this summary? Probably not. But using the templates at this point with the content may help you understand it better so that you do a better job of writing your summary. All right. So 
ultimately, if you're, if you're, you know, wondering why at any point, if you're wondering why are we beginning the course with this summary, I hate this thing. I think we should just be able to say what we think. I, that's the kind of writing I got to do in high school. They just asked me like, what did you, what did this, what did this poem make you feel? Uh, what do you think about this movie? Um, I don't care about your opinion right now because you don't have enough information to state an informed opinion. And in university, we need to be giving informed opinions, not just, you know, here's what I think or shit my dad said or, you know, my pastor, my MLA, my whomever. I saw this on Instagram. This was a genius meme that I saw. This person who says that they're a therapist told me, no. It's not how things fly in the university. We can respond to some of those things using the kind of content that we work with in the university. But at the end of the day, you know, like you're in academia now. You are a scholar in training. And there are approaches that we take in university that are in some ways quite distinct from the way that we argue in the world. But you got to move. You got to learn those moves, right? They say, I say the moves that matter in academic writing got to learn those moves and learning summary summarizing is one of those moves it's like doing drills for basketball except we're doing drills for writing better 